I think we are starting to educate ourselves and learn how to fail and know that that's not the end of the line. As designers, we can sit back and let the opportunity of crisis pass us by, or we can suit up, boot up, and actually get to the business of solving these problems. From NYC by Design, this is The Mike, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. Tune in each month as I engage in conversations exploring projects, products, and inspirations driving New York City's innovative design community. This year, The Mike is exploring design for sharing. We're uncovering new ways for creative people to share space, materials, resources, ideas, processes, and inspiration, all while being physically apart. Each month, we listen to your stories, and then I get to talk design with two inspiring guests. Want to be featured on the next episode of The Mic? Visit nycbydesign.com to tell us your design story. During today's show, I'll speak with two brilliant New York designers, Joanna Pena Bickley and Angie Lee. We'll be discussing how they continuously look for opportunities to learn and adapt in an effort to produce the best products and projects for our ever-changing world and how we can work to develop innovative and inclusive environments for all. First, let's meet the incomparable Joanna Pena Bickley, the head of research and design for Alexa devices at Amazon, a 21st century Renaissance woman and the design technologist known as the mother of cognitive experience design. Before I talk with Joanna, let's hear a bit about her background in developing captivating experiences in technology and beyond from her original message to us. For the last 25 years, I've built world-renowned creative and design teams to build enchanting experiences and products that are being used all over the world by millions of people. As a pioneering woman in artificial intelligence, public service design, and civic media and tech, I believe designers hold the keys to designing inclusive destinies today. Joanna, my first question is one I think our listeners might want to know. What is cognitive experience design? Cognitive experience design is the art and science of designing magical experiences with artificial intelligence. So whether that is working with natural language understanding or that is working with things like machine learning and generative design, that core practice of working with AI and technology, right, to solve bodacious, really gnarly human problems, cognitive experience design stands as a practice with principles and ethics built into it and inclusion and equity built into intelligence in a way that what we are doing is designing solutions for the 21st century that address 100% of humanity rather than just the few. Talk about the, the ethics a bit. What, what type of ethics do you aspire to? 
So I think it's really important when we start thinking about artificial intelligence that we address people's fear, right? For many years, um, whether it was through my life at IBM or here at, at Amazon, that we address what we know is people's fear of being replaced by machines. Artificial intelligence is not here to replace us. It's here to augment us. I like to think about it in almost comic book terms, right? In the, in the way that you would think about how might I augment my hearing, my vision, right? My ability to think. Um, when we think about those problems, you know, why, why do humans need those things? I look at it through an inclusion lens. You know, so often one of the things I couldn't be more proud of is some of the work that we are doing in the hearable space, right? Really democratizing hearing and sound in a way that we've never done before. So the Amazon Echo Buds are a great example of where we are essentially putting microcomputers in people's ears. And so the ethics of being able to do that is working with the healthcare community, right, side by side, and ensuring that what we are doing is augmenting the human, not trying to replace the human. And the most important part of this is that we are essentially enabling you to hear the world the way that you want to hear it. And so that, when I think about it, is those real world use cases that you can bring to bear when you have the power of artificial intelligence and design. And I think the core part of this is that it's not one or the other, right? And I think for a very long time in the design world, we have focused in on design is not tech and tech is not design. I think that we can all agree that the world is design and technology enables even sometimes better design. And so when we think about this, you know, you start by saying, I'm augmenting the human, not replacing it. And then we move on to the areas of transparency. Humans should know that they're working with machines. You shouldn't go and try and trick them into believing they're dealing with another human. And so when you look at both, you know, the augmentation of human, then we have transparency. The third part of this one, and I think this is so critical, is representation. The ethics of having people represented not just creating the design and technology, but ensuring that we are putting forth the way that I think the whole world thinks. You know, that is essentially meaning that when we think about those designers at the table that you need, needs to be representative of your customer base so that what you're doing is creating a symbiotic relationship with the customers. And then the last part of this, right, the, the last, I think, sometimes most important part, once you've gotten through your, we're not going to replace humans, we have transparency in that you understand that you, we are fundamentally transforming your relationship with machines, and that we have the right representation at the table, right? The next part of this is around really thinking about focusing in on time, because what AI and design stands to do is actually transform time. Think about the time to do a task. And I think about this in, in a couple different ways. You know, I do something as simple as say, hey, Alexa, turn off my lights. It takes me a second. I used to have to walk across the room and go do those things. And the world of business, you can think about it as the manufacturing process, utilizing artificial intelligence to actually help manufacturers create and design new products. And so the ability to cut down the amount of time that it takes to do that is really exciting to me. The last example I'll share with you, Debbie, is generative design. It's one that I am so passionate about, is where when you combine machine learning with our ability to use technology 
to create infinite possibilities, infinite answers to solving a problem, then what you truly get is the opportunity to begin to curate and be far more objective about your ideas when you have that as a complementary tool. Why do you think that so many people are afraid of artificial intelligence? Well, let me start with, I think that we've had close to 100 years of science fiction that has not actually done us a good service. <laughs> as, a, as a comic book guru and a science fiction nerd, I will tell you, I see the movies and I just cringe because I say, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> While it is really entertaining to, to see a machine call you Dave, my machine calls me by my first name too, but she's often looking to be in service to me in a way uh, that is about really elevating my day, allowing me to, I call it things sourcing, right? Uh, there's 20 things that I could be doing in multitasking, but I really want to focus in on the big problems. And as a designer, if we think about artificial intelligence that way, I think you get past the human fear and say, once I know how to use it, it's actually one of the most powerful tools in the world because at your fingertips, you can begin to focus on the problems that need to be solved. I think about email. Resolve that problem. Why am I going through 100 emails when I can actually do some programmability? Say, you know what, just show me the emails that are really important today. Can you tell us why you think that there's a growing need for intelligent experiences? The growing need for intelligent experiences actually begins with something that is so, I think, so uniquely human. And that uniquely human part of this is that we are inundated with tons of information. Your iPhone's blinging, your email's going off. If we think about it, you've probably, in the last hour, dealt with 25 gigs of some kind of data inundating your head. And what I think artificial intelligence stands to do is actually be the cure to cognitive overload. And doing so in a way that, you know, if we think about societally, we weren't originally programmed as humans to, to take in all this information. You know, the brain can only handle so many books that are sitting in the Library of Congress. So when we start to think about that, what we are filling our brains with, I look at it as just the same way that we think about uh, what are we filling our body with, with good, uh, you know, good eating. We have to think about our brains the same way. What this helps us to do is actually feed our brains with a slightly more reduced amount of information that helps us in our everyday. I just became aware of a new term I read in preparing for the show today, that humans are cognitive misers. I don't know if you've heard that term you have. So, so tell, us, tell us why we are cognitive misers and how artificial intelligence might help us get over that. I tend to be an idealist in, in all things. So the idea around being a cognitive miser has never actually fit me because it is really the anti-sharing of information. It's always been about taking in the information, holding it, and having this elite space in society around what makes you the smartest person in the room. I think so one of the, the most important things that we can think to look at is how AI actually democratizes intelligence. I think the more open that it is, the more accessible that it becomes, is that the same intelligence that a physician holds trying to treat cancer can be the same intelligence that a teacher in a refugee camp can get to. And having that accessibility to that same intelligence to solve problems that we know are solvable right? 
I think is really the difference between the two. You know, the thing I worry about and keeps me up at night, I actually call it the intelligence divide. For a long time, we talked about the digital divide. I think COVID-19 showed us what happens when we don't take care of those things. In the digital divide, connectivity means commerce and economic empowerment. As someone who spends a lot of time working with women in the field of design, in that space, you know, if you don't have connectivity, you don't have an ability to earn in this space. So now take that same thought and think about intelligence. And what we can't do, and what we have to, since we are so at the early nascent stages of AI, we stand the opportunity to ensure that when we augment people's intelligence or their abilities, that we're able to augment everyone and that what we don't create is an intelligence divide. Yeah. I have a two-part question for you. As a design technologist, how do you approach creating products and experiences for everyone in that democratized way? And what is the first step that you take in doing this? Sure. You know, what's really interesting is that my approach to this actually comes out of having grown up in a design studio. I'm a second generation designer. I gave birth to the third generation by total accident. We didn't tell them they had to be designers. But I grew up in an interior design and architecture studio that was owned and run by my mother. I don't use any different, any different methodology in approaching problem solving than she did. You know, I look at it and say when people would come in and they say, you know, here I'm here to create a commercial space or I'm here to create a home. Her approach to it was that the space was about making people work and live or produce something in a symbiotic way. As someone who sits, you know, in the space of design and very proud of it, my palette just happens to be just a little bit different. I use the same things. I'm very, very important with typography and color. Those are core to everything that I do. But at the same time, my palette, right? My palette might be data, but my tools are technology. And that's the only difference between it. So my approach is very much about really trying to first conduct research, understand the human problem, truly get down to not just looking at it in reports, third-party research, but getting down and understanding what the core customer problem that it is that we're trying to solve, and then the second part and answer to that question is ensuring that when we are conducting research, that we have representation of both gender and ethnic minorities on equal par to everything that we're doing. So whether I am creating a hearable, right, for the next generation Echo Buds to the next speaker, that what we are doing is that we are bringing the appropriate people to the table and that we're not designing for them, we're designing with them. How do you find those people? Well, I think it's really important for us to get outside of the New York bubble. There are Latinos and African-American women in the Midwest who deserve to be heard and have very different problems in their everyday. So a really good example of this is a research study that actually is ongoing. But I go to the Midwest. <laughs> you know, I go to the Midwest, I go to the South, and I go and I talk with customers. And the first thing I do is I deeply listen. You know, I really deeply try to understand the human conditions and what the conditions of their life is. Because as we know, what plays in Manhattan does not play in Peoria. And so it's so important to get out of our ivory towers of design, away from the computer for a little bit with a paper and pad, and go ask some really important questions of our customers and find out what ails them. 
Find out what their problems are. What are their dreams, their hopes, their fears? And then truly try to work backwards from the customer. And how do you take the information that you gather from your customers and then integrate those learnings into the design of Amazon's Alexa devices? So I think one of the misnomers of being in a really big corporation is that somehow maybe you lose touch with your customers. One of our first leadership principles, one that we are measured by, is called customer obsession. And those of us in the field of design go, oh, customer obsession, we've done that all the time. But working at Amazon is actually one of the things that, it isn't just the design community that is obsessed with our customer. It is every product manager, it is every engineer, it is every executive. And that obsession goes down to ensuring that, you know, you have to make sure that at least one day that you are sitting on the call lines, making sure somebody gets their groceries to truly get out of your space. So then when you're able to bring it back is that everything that we do works backward from the customer. So when you have everybody on the same page and measured uh, for success by that same customer obsession, You know, when we go through, we do our annual talent reviews inside of a large corporation. It's very rare that you say, well, how obsessed for the customer was she? Well, you have to actually give evidence and proof and bring that evidence and proof how what you have done has actually impacted somebody's day. What you have done hasn't just been some big launch, but actually is being used. I always find it so interesting that we in design get very excited about the launch and forget about the usage. (laughs) If it's not improving somebody's life, we missed it. We missed it. Yeah, I, I I think that the time has come where we're much less, we need to be much less obsessed with a different form or a different flavor, but how is this going to make a difference in someone's life? And I think that's a great parlay, Debbie, because one of the things in COVID, making sure that people stayed connected at a time when people were ill, I will give this example because it's something that When you're designing for things, you try to design for every use case. But when COVID hit and we realized, particularly in our Echo Show family, that physicians were putting them inside the hospital rooms of patients with COVID in order to be able to drop in and ensure that they were doing okay or that families could stay connected to loved ones while ill, it's the thing that actually made me feel good at night amidst all of this chaos that's something that you've created, something that your team has driven to to great excellence in producing, is actually working. And it's working for good, the good of someone. Joanna, while I have you here, I feel like it's, it's so important to try to leverage everything you know for our listeners. So I want to ask you another two-part question. One, can you explain what the Internet of Things is for our listeners? And then if you can talk a little bit about how you think the Internet of Things space is becoming more inclusive as compared to what it was. Mm, It's a great question. So let me start with, I love talking about the Internet of Things. (laughs) (laughs) I love listening to you talk about it. So let's start with the Internet of Things. In the next 20 years, which is going by very quickly, if you haven't noticed, will connect everything to everyone. It is a neural network of sensors along our supply chains, all the way to our healthcare stations, 
to our individualized homes and our energy grid. When we talk about infrastructure, Purdue says, what is infrastructure? It's about laying new roads and things. But what gets me excited, it's actually about laying those new roads with connectivity and sensors so that every one of those things, whether that be a road, a home, a tractor, a smart speaker, a new pair of wearables, a prosthesis for a wounded warrior, that they have some kind of ability to do some kind of compute, they have connectivity to the internet, and that they stand the ability to augment our experience. But why is it transformational? I think this is super important. We have only to look back at history. I think as designers, we have to study our history in order to envision a future. And we are at the nascent stages of the fourth industrial revolution. And the IoT, Internet of Things, stands as the communications general purpose technology platform. Before, if we thought about it, in previous, it was telephony. Prior to that, it was things like printing, right? The steam-powered printer was that revolutionary thing that transformed our economy into taking what used to be hand-scribed books, if you remember. We don't remember, right? We weren't alive, or not even our parents were alive. But these hand-scribed books was the primary way that people communicated. Then, you know, with the advent of the telephone, that was the way that we stayed connected. The Internet of Things now not only connects humans, but it connects humans to machines, and in a way that is actually transforming our relationship with machines and actually transforming what it means to be human. Joanna, my, my last question for, for this part of our conversation is about the Things graph, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that is and how it's helping designers work in conjunction with developers. Absolutely. So let's take a step back and say that anytime that you can democratize a, a technology like ThingsGraph, but I think there's many different examples of where you can do this. A designer can create or design an infrastructure where you can actually physically drag and drop these WYSIWYG systems that allow us to create that connectivity. Sometimes it's just a simple use case as this. The things graph in my own home begins with, I have connected my lights, my coffee machine, <laughs> you know, my doorbell, my alarms, my music system, so that on a timer, in an automated fashion, exactly at 5.30 a.m. every single morning, the following thing happens. My lights rise, my shades open up, the music that I love in 1010 Winds begins playing. I get my corpus of information and a little bit of inspiration every single morning while I'm doing my makeup and getting ready for the day. And so that is a way that we are actually automating systems. But if you look at it on a grander scale, it helps you to orchestrate the world to work in a much better way. And I think the relationship with designers is, which is really important, is that it used to be these were things that you had to hard code that you actually had to be able to, to code in and have an engineering background. And what this does is it democratizes those tools in such a way that not only designers can utilize them. I think we're one of the primary users, but we will see it over time continue to democratize and see that your children will use them. They will orchestrate their world. I was looking at this like the David Copperfield magic wand effect of being able to, I can turn on my lights. <laughs> Not that music, Lady Gaga. J-Lo, sing that again, right? Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> so as we think a little bit about what that is and the power of it, but I'm going to pause for a second and, and maybe answer it slightly different. I think Thingscraft is great, but I think one of the things that's really important for designers, and this is going to be true of every design discipline, it's something I still talk about with my mother, it isn't enough for design technologists to know code. You will find very quickly in the next 10 years, if you cannot code, you will not be able to design the world you're used to, whether you are an architect, right, an urban planner, right, somebody, it doesn't have to be a digital product when you realize that the Internet of Things is making everything a digital product. When the physical world, right, becomes mirrored, we often you hear things, digital twins, and that idea between digital twins. I call it a mirror world. We're very quickly creating this mirror world in order for you to decorate that mirror world, in order for you to architect the next building in that world, in order for you to design the next airplane or car, you're gonna have to know how to code. And even more importantly than that, the trades that fix those things will have to know how to code. And so the importance of us not relying completely on things like a things graph, right, that do help, that accelerate certain people's skills. I think it's really important that one of the things that design schools do is actually make code a part of their curriculum. Because otherwise, we're not enabling people to design or command the world that they are living in. Yeah, it's, it's a language now that we all need to learn how to speak. Joanna Pena Bickley, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, please stick around because I want to continue talking with you, with Angie. And I think that the three of us are also going to be able to have some really interesting conversation about the world of inclusive technology. Thank you so much. Now I'd like to introduce you to Angie Lee. Angie is a partner and design director of interiors at FX Collaborative a New York City-based architecture, interiors, and planning design firm. With over 25 years of experience, Angie uses a unique, multifaceted approach that integrates emotional design narrative, technical precision, and artistic intuition into her work. Before I talk with Angie, let's listen to her original message to us, expressing how storytelling and problem-solving are integral to her role as a designer. Storytelling is at the heart of what I do as a designer. Shaping interior environments spatially, emotionally, and tactilely is part problem-solving and part dreaming or imagining bigger than the problem statement. The storyteller in this process wields the power to shape the narrative, define the problem, and influence the outcome. I'm very much in the throes of learning how to recalibrate the stagnation of the status quo by searching for the stories and the kind of innovation we need to design built environments that will sustain us. With spotlights on justice, diversity, inclusion, health and sustainability, understanding that these issues are connected is key to this learning process. To solve any one of these issues, we need to solve for all of them. Becoming a better storyteller and becoming a powerful learner are the two sides of the same coin that will buy us a livable future, and I keep coming back to the idea that willful innocence, more so than willful ignorance, is the enemy of innovation. Angie, thank you so much for joining us. In your voice message, you mentioned that storytelling is at the heart of what you do. 
What are the kinds of stories that you aspire to tell through design? Well, first, I should start by saying, you know, I'm discovering ways to share my own stories, actually. I rarely found space to share those throughout my career, but I became pretty good at describing the world around me with an intense focus on what you would call normal and mainstream. The storytelling forums that I found myself in, like classrooms and boardrooms, were crowded with stories of normalcy and a kind of mythological and manic positivity that left very little oxygen for stories from, you know, the land of the other, which is where I was ambiguously placed. And the reasons why it wasn't a ready option to share the stories that I had collected are harder to explain than you might imagine because... They're tied to a certain level of discomfort for the people listening to them. Many of the folks who are being told these kind of less fun tales from people in the margins are committed to tenets of design that center those at the top of the power structure in our society. And decentering the idealized power broker is to be at risk of incivility, impoliteness, or even insubordination. So those tenets are like, pebbles in my shoes, the tenets of Eurocentric, male-centric design that is recycled class after class, year after year in design school, and was taught to me as stylistic vanguards in the form of the Bauhaus, mid-century modern, you know, anything, (laughs) Scandinavian minimalism, etc. But I learned how to become fluent in the retelling of these stories of these pebbles in my shoes It helped that I had an early jump on the Americanization of my Korean-American identity. And, you know, through design, I aspired to manifest the stories of the people who occupy the spaces that I helped to create. You know, I try to learn their full story, uh, much like Joanna, who they are at home on their commute and who they turn themselves into when they walk into the workplace. Without knowing that, I might be in danger of designing a treehouse for a fish or an aquarium for a bird, you know, it's, it's, it gets that weird sometimes. But I'm working on nowadays is my weakness in telling my own story. You know, I'm rehabilitating my memory of my ethnic heritage and the best parts of my native culture in a way that allows space for someone like me, who is Korean American, or some other hyphenation, but who doesn't actually fit into the common mold on either side of that hyphen. And I believe there's a great deal of power and urgency in learning to tell your own story. And that is one of the most difficult things you can challenge yourself with, I've come to believe. I think that conquering the fear of who you who you were, who you are, who who we are, will let us connect and solve and take action and ultimately design a more lasting and profoundly respectful future. Angie, it seems like that discomfort has really led to an almost willful ignorance in eliminating the other, in, yeah. in uh, discarding the other, in ignoring this sort of fundamental and, and necessary part of who we are. Why do you think that that's happened? How have we let that happen? Well, it's, we all want to be right. Eddie Gloud, I heard this this notion of we are a lot of the people in the margins are suffering from the this willful ignorance, which is innocence, essentially, that is something that is 
heavily guarded in our society. It's, you know, it's pretty much a universal virtue to be an innocent, right? So people protect that with such ferocity that any kind of inconvenient challenge to that is tamped down. So it's kind of an ingenious design, you know, the society that we have right now that kind of quashes the stories that don't support the, the sort of dominant narrative. With the speed in our changing population and what our world is likely to look at in like 2050, for example, I think it's it's a requirement now that we bring those margins closer to the center. What are some of the steps that you take to ensure that those margins are front and center now in the work that you're doing? Well, oddly, the most difficult thing for me is telling my own story because I do represent a part of society that I'm just learning, embarrassingly, kind of late in life about, you know, the model minority and this kind of toxic positivity that is part of the status quo that really... I am an idealist. I, I was born with the tiger mom and this whole thing that, you know, now we're starting to understand is not the way that you should really be brought up either. <laughs> it was not such a great model to keep perpetuating. So what I try to do, and a lot of people are doing it right now, is making sure that we have the metrics and the boxes checked. So we have the people in the room who should be there. You bring them to the table. And then, you know, as Joanna was saying, elicit the stories that they have. Now, here's where I'm at, because that is so much harder than I ever expected it to be for not just the folks who are Black and Asian and Hispanic and, and all the other ethnic minorities that we want in the room, and including myself. It's so much harder to tell the kinds of unpopular and sort of real tales of what it's like to be in spaces that are not designed for them. Can you define toxic positivity? Yes, it's a weird one. I, it does stop people in their tracks because we hear so much advice on staying positive and making sure that you always come with the solution to the problem. It's always solvable. Now, toxic positivity is, again, part of this innocence that America especially is good at defending. And it starts to speak to how a lot of the issues that we have siloed are really um, tremendous forces of influence on each other. So when we talk about racism and sustainability as separate issues, you know, it, that's not how we solve those issues. They're completely connected. There's environmental racism and there is gender and environmental sustainability and the fact that you need to you know, educate and empower women all, all around the world to sort of take charge and agency of their own lives. And that actually has a humongous impact on the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that you can draw away, the Project Drawdown, that think tank that presents, you know, a hundred of the best solutions to sort of draw down the carbon emissions problem that we're facing. It lists all these kind of social, economic and design kinds of interventions that we're sort of looking at as a, as a whole and understanding that when we talk about the stories that support and make real the data, that's when we have our stumbling blocks because toxic positivity issue is about, again, sort of protecting our innocence. If we don't know, if we are not sort of 
guilty of the sin of knowledge, then we're not really part of the problem. But of course, that's just simply not true. You've stated that you believe that willful innocence is the enemy of innovation. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can talk a little bit about why you feel this way and, and how to overcome it. Well, knowledge is power. You know, we need information. If we barricade ourselves from learning without being able to identify the problem, it's as simple as that, because we are innocent and, again, sort of clean of the sin of knowledge, how do we go about making the problem go away? You know, thoughts and prayers are not going to change policies or laws or prevent many of the horrid things that are happening right now. So these are dark topics that, you know, we have been steadily encouraged to stay away from and sort of use coded language and euphemisms instead of talking about specifically, you know, gun violence in schools or gendered inequality and violence in the workplace or in the home, climate change and COVID and some of the ferocious deniers who come with those topics and they go so far as to threaten the lives of people bearing the brunt of telling those truths. You know, that's kind of where we get into this notion of preparing yourself to be uncomfortable to talk about these things. Otherwise, you're not going to innovate. You're not even going to get started. Humans hate discomfort. We will do almost anything to avoid being uncomfortable. How do we get people to embrace that discomfort? Because it feels like there's no other way to be able to integrate change into our discomfort if we don't deal with looking straight at it. Absolutely. Recently, I had an interesting conversation with a woman who's been doing research on the tech industry and how they have a mantra of, you know, failing fast, you know, break things. How does it go? Break things and move on or something. But they would have fail fests, I think, in the Silicon Valley or so I've heard. And they would reward people who failed the most uh, spectacularly. And they would try to eliminate the stigma of not winning all the time. In my field, we use um, the word iterative design to mask the fact that you came up with a, you know 99 bad ideas before you got to the 100th good one, right? So we actually practice it, but we can't ever admit to it. So in terms of this discomfort, I think we are starting to educate ourselves and learn how to fail and know that that's not the end of the line. It's just this issue of grit and getting back up and trying it again. And so on repeat, that's how it becomes part of culture. What kind of innovation do you think is needed in the design sector to work towards a more sustainable future? That's a good question. I think that's really about the connectivity piece to understand that they're not separate issues. I'm stuck on this story that I remember from an industry roundtable. Another researcher had been sharing a story of this ice cream company that was trying to sell ice cream to a certain demographic in Russia that lived in the countryside. And their sales were dismal in the summer, but in the winter, it was pretty good. And so they had gone to her to see if she could help them figure out why, you know, their data was so backwards. And she elicited a story from an interview, I think in just one day, she discovered that a lot of these folks didn't have cold storage. So (laughs) they had a place to store it in the winter 
And in the summer, they didn't. And that's therefore the sales were like that. So it's about stories and, and connecting the pieces that are missing. So we have such narrow spotlights on these siloed issues. And if we can expand the spotlight, expand the authorship of who's able to impact you know, the problem statement and the outcome, then we're going to have the ability to influence one crisis from another. I love that example. I had, I was trying to think, hmm, you know, as somebody that loves research and analysis, I'm like, what could it have been? What could it have been? And just right there, it's so obvious and beautiful. Um, You've said that your approach to research and development both begins and ends with stories. And I can understand how it begins with stories. That's a very clear and beautiful example. How, how does it end with stories? And how do those stories change through the process? The data is really important. That's why we have the conversation at the beginning, with, which is just a sharing of stories with either, you know, a CEO or the head of operations or a whole steering committee. And then we start doing the, the questionnaires and the surveys and sort of slicing up those stories and turning them into numbers and quantitative metrics that we can use to understand how, much, how many square feet per office, storage room, et cetera. And then when we come back, I guess another word for it could be you know, post-occupancy studies and evaluations, which are, again, incredibly important. We don't get to do it all the time just to see if we were right. There's a lot of kind of guesswork in mining the, the information and the data and the stories, but until people actually use it, we don't really learn a lot from what we did. So that's what we do, even if we're not hired to do the post-occupancy evaluations, I always like to go back in and check back with the clients, the people who are you know using the pantries or living in the amenity spaces that we've created, to see if what we thought was true actually was. So proof, real, real empirical proof. proof. Angie, the last question I want to ask you before we bring Joanna back is you've said that it took you a while to speak openly about your identity as a woman, as a minority, and as an immigrant. Could you tell us more about this challenge and how your career at FX Collaborative has shaped your conviction? Well, I immigrated here at the age of two. And I've been embarking on a path of assimilation. And now that I know the words for this, also cultural erasure that I have not fully understood until pretty recently. So learning what it means to have contributed to the model minority myth and the reality of my ancestral culture and how things like tiger moms or tiger parents are not how the world should be has explained why it's been kind of a struggle to out myself with some of these multiple labels. But, you know, as a woman in the field of architecture, I was frequently the only woman in meetings on the drafting floor in the, on the construction site. And thankfully that has balanced out. But my higher education curriculum and all the professional career advice discouraged femininity. You know, I watched other women in the field succumb to the pressure to act like one of the boys in the office and on the construction site. And I think I'm relearning new female leadership models to create for not just myself, but my colleagues, the people ahead of me and for the people behind me, because I think we're still trying to fit ourselves into a mold that doesn't fit. And, you know, I've been at FX Collaborative for about six years. It's here that I started to learn the important task of unlearning the bad advice and to be tough and assertive 
the likable and relatable to command a room, but not challenge those who don't like aggressive women. You know, so uh, I stopped stressing about how to, like most women, fit in that very narrow tight wire. And then my daughter started asking questions about four years ago, <laughs> when she was about eight or nine, about the things Trump would spew on the news. And I began to realize how inside out my ethos was of working twice as hard as the people around me and smiling at insult and injury instead of making it right. So I was also in a position of leadership as a principal and then a partner and saw that I was finally in the enviable position of being in the room and at the table. And I just learned how to speak up in a way that wasn't promoting the status quo. Thank you for doing that. You're not only doing it for yourself and for your daughter, but for all of us that encounter that as well. Thank you so much, Angie. Before we dive back in to speak with our guests, let's share a message from our sponsor. Architects and designers, if you're not using Material Bank, then you're missing out. Thousands of design professionals use Material Bank to save countless hours specifying materials for their projects. Material Bank is the fastest, easiest, and most sustainable way to search and sample material. And best of all, you can order by midnight Eastern Standard Time and samples are shipped FedEx priority overnight, all for free. Yes, all for free. Visit us at materialbank.com to learn more. I'd like to ask Joanna to rejoin us as I have questions for both of you. And I think that um, we are going to have a really interesting conversation. <laughs> Joanna, you've been nodding throughout Angie's. Angie, uh, you and I are going to have some virtual wine very soon. <laughs> <laughs> there was something that you said, I think, that just struck me. You know, listen, I, I have, I grew up with incredible privilege of seeing a Mexican-American mom in this field. And when you were telling your story, I was nodding because I watched my mom on those construction fields. And I watched her fight the urge to be one of the boys. There were many women that often were in the company that, you know, would speak like men that, you know, were okay. But this was a woman who still would go out to construction sites in her heels with her lipstick and her hair done. As, and command, you know, the room, not just in somebody's home, but it, later in her career, um, she worked on things like the bridge between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez, or the Air Force bases down in San Antonio, Texas, and commanded the room with, you know, four-star generals. And so I, it was a privilege to see that, um, you know, and it has also been an incredible privilege over the last couple of years. You You talked about something that just hit, I just went... You know, as designers, we spend so much time chasing other people's truths, designing for other people's truths. And so when it comes to telling your truth, it's really hard. It's hard to be objective because some of that truth has pain in it. Those of us who are minority women, you know, I share that, you know, my mother and sister are women of color. And I walked through life with the privilege of being a lighter-skinned Latina. And, and knew what the difference was. There were places that when I was young that I could go to the restroom, but my mother and sister could not. And that was in the 90s. That wasn't in the 1960s. So when you understand that and you get to that table mm. in a place of privilege and you feel the 
the desire to use your native tongue. Sometimes I actually speak more passionately in Spanish than I do in English. <laughs> I've always thought that, that my grandmothers were native Spanish speakers. My great-grandmother, uh, Mami Yaya, <laughs> who uh, you know grew up in San Antonio as a housekeeper, right? This is the woman who helped to raise me. I, that was my first tongue. That was the first thing that I ever learned. So I understand passion through that language, but when you you talked about discovering your truth and talking about it, it's only been really until I got to 40 to be able to celebrate that truth, to feel comfortable in celebrating that truth, which is so odd to me. Well, as a woman who has had didn't come out until I was 50, congratulations on being able to do it at 40. Um, it's such an interesting path to overcome your own shame for whatever reason, shame that was either put on you or shame that you were socialized into. Um, I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give the next generation of anybody that feels as an other to recognize that there are others that feel exactly the same way that you do. And I think through the use of inclusive technology, we find those others and find that we're no longer a minority. Um, it's such an extraordinary connection between the three of us in understanding our paths to overcome that sense of feeling other and 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 not feeling shame about that otherness. That's absolutely right. You touched on something, you know, you don't get to come out as a Latina, you just are. <laughs> Just, you know, it's one of those things. But what it was often, and I use this example of having been the global chief creative officer at IBM, you know, the head of Alexa R&D, you still are put in those situations. And I will bring this one specific situation up that I'll never forget. It was almost that awakening that I didn't realize that often I was suppressing the who I was that lover of Mexican modernists, you know, that, that understanding that we are not the minority, we are the majority, right? But I'll never forget being on Madison Avenue and being in a room with a, a group that had come in from Mexico City. And I know my people when I see them. So, you know, I begin to speak in Spanish. And, you know, one of my colleagues all of a sudden piped up and said, you're Mexican? Well, you don't look Mexican. And I turned around and I'll never forget and said, what do Mexicans look like to you? And why does it matter? As opposed to looking at me as someone to say, wow, that woman knows three languages and can speak in the language of business and design in those three languages. To, to go, oh my God, you just outed yourself. You're one of them. And how did you get into the room where it happens? <laughs> And it was at that point that I realized for myself and for my colleagues and for my you know, women of color friends that were often not getting into these rooms, I went, from this point on, I will never enter this room by myself. It's my job, it's my duty to bring my grandmother, a woman of color, my great-grandmother, who came to this country as a housekeeper and get them in this room. That's my duty. That's my calling. That's the design of a new day. And it's not an easy one. You have to go in with a little bit of Teflon, but those cuts, <laughs> it's, sometimes it feels like death. But if you go in knowing that you do belong there, 
Absolutely. I think the only way that we're able to create the most inclusive design is to bring our whole selves into that process and to be as aware of others in in the best possible sense as you do that. As you both work in large-scale projects that address myriad people's needs, what processes do you go through to understanding the range of people that you're designing for and make sure that all of those needs are being met? And this is really a question for both of you. So maybe, Angie, if you want to go first. Sure. I, I'm now recently, uh, I guess, putting myself into an asset category, which went against my training as, you know, a mom, an immigrant, a hyphenated pluralist, okay? It took some doing to accept that I represented a good deal of people in the same, in some way. And I was doing a disservice to them by not dreaming bigger about how to solve for the experiences that I used to put up with. So I'm starting with myself, weirdly, um, in addition to uh, doing what I know how to do best, which is dreaming for others. And unfortunately... Um, you know, I am guilty of contributing to the status quo, and that's something that I'm constantly asking myself with the stories that I'm learning to tell and hearing other stories is, is a very simple binary. Is it promoting or challenging the status quo? Is it going to make additional room for people like me in addition to the people who are already here and comfortable sharing their stories of golfing and being <laughs> in a you know, a, a heteronormative existence. So that's how I'm trying to make sure that everybody is captured. And then understanding that, I mean, you guys are probably familiar, right, with this 80-20 rule. Like if you hit, if you design for 80% of your population and the 20%, you know, at least they get something, right? But I've been obsessed with a book called Mismatch by Kat Holmes. And I love the premise at the end. I'm giving away the book, but her examples of the most revolutionary inventions and innovations are essentially love stories because they design for the people who are in dire need sometimes, but they're usually people that they are related to. They love this person. They understand the full immersive story of that whole person and they solve for that person. And then what happens is like then, you know, the modern day keyboard, the touch screen, the sippy straw, the curb cut, you know, so all of these things were designed for those people in the margins in a very small percentage. And then something wonderful happens out of that. So that's kind of why I'm trying to find out, like, you know, I'm reaching for the, the person in the farthest corner right now in the margins, which happens to be me because I haven't told my story. <laughs> uh, I haven't told my story the, the most, I suppose. Joanna, what about you? What do you think of that? So I think the thing that brings commonality to Angie and I is actually we do start with narrative. You know, I am a dyslexic kid from San Antonio, Texas. I am a Mexican-American Jew and a proud mom of four. And I still believe in futurism, but in a multicultural futurism. And, and it comes from reading as a child you know, I was a visual learner. I didn't. I actually didn't learn to read till the third grade. So when I got a chance to learn to read, it was so critical to me to continue on this power. But I sit down to write stories, and I have from the time that I was a kid. 
every invention that I've ever created, whether it was, you know, as a kid designing my big wheel to be autonomous. You know, my mother has all the inventions that I've ever designed. I have a list of them that were, but they all came from the space of I first would sit down and draw out like a comic book version of what the story would be. Later, you would find out that it's more like I was imagining 12 tomorrows. What were the infinite tomorrows that we could create? And for me, it was just natural to, I, you know, those of us who are Trekkies knew what IDIC means. Do you know what IDIC means? It means infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And if you understand that, you go, that's why we had an Uhura. Because in 2023, there's going to be a black woman in space. And you, you, that's where you come from. And I would write these stories with the people that I would want to be creating with. You know, the touch screen. You talked a little bit about the touch screen, but often because I was in an architecture and design studio that my mom had created, it was thinking about carpet as magic carpet. Could this carpet become a source of mobility? And having that imagination, and I think that I was just in a very fortunate space that my mother helped to feed those imaginations. I spent my days in, in her warehouse full of construction materials saying, oh, these are these really cool automated machines. What if? Daring to ask, what if in this story you're able to lift a house and it could go down a river and we were, you know, floating together in these communities? And so for me now as an adult and as an Amazonian, the first thing that we ever do is we sit down and we write a narrative. It's called, here it's called a PRFAQ. For me, I would, you know, we call it speculative design when I had my own firm. But you look at all these ways that you start with the narrative and then you work your darndest to try to make it real, right? The process of design isn't does it just begin with the narrative, but it's how do I make it real? How do I make it real for millions of people to live in that infinite diversity, in infinite combinations, in a world that is made for 100% of humanity without social, ecological, or economic disenfranchisement to anyone? How can we tell those stories of discovery? So for me, and a lot of times it comes from that passionate imagination that started out as a kid. As my own children will tell you, I am still my five-year-old self. <laughs> it drives them bananas because for them, it's like, but wait a minute, what if? They know what if means, oh gosh, we're going to build a movie studio. That she's, she's on some, to something new. Or what does AI and entertainment mean together? It's going to be this the imagination of trying to put things together. And I will say that in those stories, I have probably learned more from my failures than I ever did from anyone's success. I think what's really important is that stories fail us sometimes. And it's so critical to come back. And the thing I keep at my desk is this pen and this pad to write a new chapter, to dare, dare to define a different destiny, not just for me, but for my children. The, the thing that keeps me up at night is that we've got to design solutions to reunify families. Today, as we sit, we as designers have a calling to actually address. We have some very big problems in our world. And as designers, we can sit back and let the opportunity of crisis pass us by, or we can suit up, boot up, and actually get to the business of solving these problems. Mm. 
I want to talk to Joanna all the time, every day, <laughs> from here on out. <laughs> I know. I was so excited when when the Mike team told me uh, about Joanna being on the show. You both posed a really interesting question in thinking about inclusive design. Angie, you said that you're always asking yourself, is this promoting or dismissing the status quo? And Joanna, you asked the question, what if? What if? If you were giving advice to the design community about the first step that they could make in their commitment to creating more inclusive design, what would that one step be? First step. Finding purpose. We're not designing a chair. We're not designing a new speaker. The world doesn't need a new speaker. Sorry, <laughs> just doesn't. But finding the, the innate purpose underlying, what is it that you are here to do? Because when you understand that purpose, then you will always be creating and daring to try to meet that purpose, to create a new day for somebody to create a new system of engagement, of civic engagement or public service for someone or someone that looks just like you. So for me, it is understanding that when you put purpose in someone's hands, that they'll live to that purpose in unique and different ways and it will manifest itself in greater and greater invention and the dare to be and design a better tomorrow, not just for themselves, but for everyone. Angie, last word is with you. I love that. I think somewhat related to finding your purpose is advice that I wish somebody had given to me is prepare to not succeed quickly and appreciate the journey and the lessons that you're going to learn with all these failures and falling down. You will find your purpose. It took me a little while. And uh, I think it's still evolving. So this, this notion of always learning, I love because that is the, the most important thing that we can tell anyone to do. Because sadly, we do sort of cut ourselves off and feel like we've achieved some sort of pinnacle and we've arrived and no longer accept new stories or stop learning. Angie Lee, Joanna Pena Bickley, thank you both so much for joining us today to talk about how design is always learning. And thank you for teaching me so much in today's episode. We hope this conversation introduced a new set of perspectives on how inclusive practices and design innovation can help enable us to build a better, more inclusive future. Keep asking, is this promoting or dismissing the status quo? And what if? It's time to share this month's featured voice messages. Join us at the end of each episode to hear additional design stories from talented members of New York's creative community that have shared their inspiration with us. Today, we're hearing from James Dieter, Natalie Nixon, and Nikki Green. James Dieter is a Brooklyn-based lighting designer whose creative process is all about continuous learning. In his practice, it's about puzzling out the mechanics and the forms of materials and learning from them through the unexpected ways they interact. 
These design junctures, twists and turns, carry the lighting to structural places that aren't always where James set out to take them. Let's hear from James on how his practice enables him to continuously learn new processes and skills. A lot of my ideas are based around puzzling through different repeated or related forms to see how they interact. Most of the connections in my work center around non-traditional fastening. So when working on a way that two parts will come together, it often happens that aspects of the form of the parts will change to make for some more interesting connection. In this way, I often bounce around between several ideas at once, looking for opportunities to exploit. Uh, For instance, if I were to mill a part in a different way, what other changes does that now allow that might affect the overall form? You can have three ideas coalesce into one idea, or you could have one idea that becomes three. This, to me, is really the most fun because you never know what might develop, and the feeling that there's this potential for something really interesting to happen is always right there. Natalie Nixon is a creativity strategist and the president of Figure 8 Thinking, where she helps leaders apply creativity and foresight to achieve transformative business results. Natalie is a hybrid thinker, comfortably synthesizing creative and analytical thought processes from design and business to arrive at innovative opportunities. Let's hear Natalie's thoughts on how we can redesign our relationship with time. Days of uncertainty are designed for creativity. Why? Because creativity loves mess. And these are hot mess times. I think about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Wonder is awe, audacity, asking big blue sky what if questions, and pausing. Rigor is deep focus, discipline, and time on task. Here are two ways we can redesign our relationship with time. Idea number one, on a personal level, develop a new ritual that helps you to focus on the present. I doodle a flower for every moment, experience, or exchange for which I'm grateful, no matter how small or large. For example, by 10 a.m. today, I've doodled three flowers and I'll have a gratitude bouquet by the end of today on my whiteboard. Idea number two, For your teams, insist on heads down, non-Zoom meeting time where individuals can do a deep dive focus or rigor on an area of their interest and then ask them to share back with the group. You'll find that people come back renewed and refreshed. Intentionally making time and space for wonder and rigor is how we exercise our creativity, see interconnections, and grow our capacity to be lifelong learners. Nikki Green is founder and creative director of Articolo, a design studio inspired by the art of light. Articolo creates artisanal lighting fixtures that reflect Nikki's fascination with the shadow play of light and the unique and inherent soul that is revealed within mouth-blown glass. In her voice message, Nikki shares the design journey that brought her Australian-based lighting brand to New York City. I founded Articolo in 2012 in Melbourne, Australia, and even then I'd always set my sights on New York as the studio's creative sister city and its main inspirational hub. 
When you look at the global landscape of lighting design, you can immediately identify New York as the city where the world's top lighting studios are concentrated. I knew that for Articolo to have a chance at the big leagues, so to speak, we had to set up shop and situate ourselves amongst the most revered lighting brands in the world. In 2017, we took the leap. And despite the momentous task and learning curves which we had to overcome, and there were many, inclusive of UL certifications, which is no small feat for a small business located down under, we've never looked back. New York City's creative design community continues to inspire me and my work every day and the connections and relationships we've made in this community are truly akin to family. Want to talk design with me on the next episode of The Mic? We can't wait to hear your design story. Share it in the form of a voice message at nycbydesign.com. Join me next month to talk beauty is everywhere. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter to be the first to find out about next month's featured guests and the latest in New York by Design.